Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the land. An ugly and painful source broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into the blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who are the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing in miraculous signs, and they, and they go out to the kings of the world, the whole world, to gather them for the battle on the great day of Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is the who stays awake and keep his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from his throne saying, It is done. Then there came places of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. This is the word of God. Let's pray as we ask for God's help. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. 
thank you that you are the author and you can help us to interpret it. Please help us now to focus our minds on what you have to say, to hear from you, and to apply it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, I've pointed out to you a few times that this is a book that should not be read as a series of events that happen chronologically, A, then B, then C, but as a, a, each set of seven goes by, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven visions, and now lastly, seven bowls, uh, it's re-examining and recapitulating, repeating God's unfolding plan for history. And each set of seven gives a slightly different angle on the plan. It, it highlights certain aspects. And with each set of seven, the intensity ratchets up. It increases. Which means that one of the great things about preaching through this book is that if I miss something a few weeks before, I get to emphasize it to you and, and try to make it clear in uh, the next set of seven. So I'm hoping to do that this morning. But the, the recapitulation and the amplification of what has come before is particularly evident this week, if you've been with us in previous weeks. The seven bulls seem to follow the, a very similar pattern to the seven trumpets when they were blown. The first trumpet and the first bowl are poured out on the earth. The second trumpet and the second bowl are, are poured out on the sea and the third on the rivers and the springs, and so on and so on. And we saw back in chapters 8 and 9 that the trumpet judgments were themselves closely linked to the ten plagues on Egypt. And so there's this pattern of how God judges a people when they turn to idols, when they refuse to observe him and to worship him. And we'll see that in the seven bowls. But this is not simply a repeat, it is an amplification as well. The ten plagues on Egypt, they were on a nation. The seven bowl, or sorry, the seven trumpets we saw, they affected one-third of the earth. Now, the seven bowls we see are being poured out on the whole earth. There is no escape. The bowls show us there is no geography, no people group that will finally escape God's righteous judgment. And this morning, I want you to see three things from this chapter, which are uh, on the bottom of page six. I want you to see the need for a righteous judge. We do need one. I want you to see the limits of persuasion. And I want you to see the necessity of martyrdom. The need for a righteous judge. I was reading the news this week, and it struck me again, as it often does, that so many of our problems are due to the fact that we do not have a righteous judge to, to, to judge between disputed issues. That's a problem on an individual level. It's also a problem on the geopolitical level. So often we feel there's nobody that we can trust. And that is very clear in this ongoing conflict in Gaza, I think, if you're reading about that over the last month. Everyone's motives are suspect. Every fact is spun. Every account is disputed. What looks like uh, common sense and justice to one side seems like 
hate and oppression to the other side. And depending on which sources you're reading, one view is emphasized. Those who advocate in either direction are accused of being racist, hateful racist, or at least just supremely ignorant. And because there's no history, uh, no straightforward history to the area, it is a very complex uh, place, and these, these events are complex. Everybody just draws on the history, on the elements that support what they want to do, and, and sort of ignore the opposition. If only, if only there was somebody who could judge the Israeli and, and the Palestinian peoples with equity. Who do we look to to solve this? There's certainly no human judge that we can trust. That's what we see in the news, and that is a very fraught topic these days, but we can actually see the same need for a righteous judge in our own uh, neighborhoods, in our own lives, our own families. Because our trust in the judgment of others is largely broken down. We live in an age of suspicion. Philosophers of a previous generation said that we have a hermeneutic of suspicion, but we don't even think about that anymore. It's just the air we breathe. We suspect everybody and everything. We've learned to treat every institution with suspicion, mainstream media or social media. Governments, universities, corporations, churches, they all have an agenda. And therefore, we can ignore what they have to say. The internet has taught us that every truth claim should be fact-checked. But then you have to fact-check the fact-checkers because they have an agenda as well. And who's fact-checking the fact-checkers' checkers? You know, we it goes so far down and our distrust extends to everything. You see the suspicion eating away at our local communities. I mean, uh, those of us who live in villages, we know that battles over parking are famously vicious because everybody suspects that somebody is trying to take advantage. And we have in our families as well this problem. I've done a lot of funerals in the years that I've been a minister, and I know that Old accusations and new suspicions emerge as soon as the estate is being dealt with. There's money on the line, and suddenly, no one can be trusted. At every level, we need somebody who can judge rightly, righteously. And Revelation shows us that there is such a judge. God is a judge that can sort through all the complexities of every issue because he was and is. When he comes, he was there for everything that transpired and he will see that justice is done. He will not be fooled by spin. He does not have an agenda other than righteous judgment. His judgments are just. We, we see that verses 5 and 7. Verse 5, then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. And I, verse 7, I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. 
Notice that when God pours out judgment over the whole earth, he is both just and true. Just and true. He's just, meaning that what he does is in keeping with his holy nature, his righteousness. He doesn't wink at sinners. He doesn't say, ah, boys will be boys. No, he judges. He condemns. But he's able to punish in a way that our court systems never are because he never acts based on partial information. He never convicts falsely. He has perfect information. He is, he was. He's seen everything. So when he comes, he's just. But he's also true. And what's the difference there? Well, he, he, he's true. That means that his judgment is consistent with the sin that's been done. God is the originator of the idea that the punishment should fit the crime, and his punishments fit the crime. As he judges the world, we see in verse 6, For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. The punishment fits the crime. Ultimately, this is the reason why God judges the world. We've been seeing this sort of through Revelation. He judges the entire world system because the inhabitants of the earth have persistently, they've deliberately, they've repeatedly shed the blood of his holy people, Christians, throughout the ages. All the way back to the first murder, you remember Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. Why did he kill his brother Abel? Because Abel's sacrifices were pleasing to God, and Cain hated the fact that Abel was pleasing God. Yes, God is just in his judgment. The Lord Jesus tells a parable in the Gospels about tenants. Uh, a man who had planted a vineyard, he went and um, went to great trouble to make it perfect, ideal for producing crops, producing grapes. And then he went on a long journey, and he rented it out to some farmers who were there to produce a crop. At harvest time, the landowner sent a servant to receive the rent that's owed for the lands. The farmers beat up the servant. They send him away empty-handed. Well, the landowner sends another, and the same happened, and then another, and then they kill that servant, and then another, and they beat him up, and, and another, until he's only got one person left to send, his son. And he says, surely they'll respect my son. But they say to themselves, if we kill the son, we inherit the land. It's ours. And so that's exactly what they do. And the Lord Jesus says, then what will the landowner do to those tenants? What should he do? He must judge them. We can't blame him for judging that kind of wickedness. Justice demands it. And Jesus is there telling the history, not just of Israel, but the whole world. And Revelation is showing what happens when the farmer returns? 
God made a perfect world, a wonderful vineyard. He's given us every resource that we could want. And yet we take them for ourselves. We don't even acknowledge him with a thank you. God sends loving warnings through the ages. He sends his prophets. Uh, he sends warnings through the, the natural world as natural uh, disasters and events show us that we need security somewhere else, that we can't uh, trust in the natural world alone. Above all, he sends his son, and we kill him. And that is what we are like. That is what humanity is like. This week, I read a story in the, the BBC following up on uh, two Christian women who had been abused in, by Hindu nationalists in Manipur. Uh, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but uh, this is a, a state within India. Um, and these women, a, a video of them being abused, paraded naked through the street, went viral about six months ago. The BBC followed up with them. These women were members of a, or living in a Christian village among a predominantly Christian people, and this mob uh, came and attacked the village based on false accusations. The village church was burned down. That was just one of over 500 that have been burned down in this conflict. Many homes were burned down. These women watched as their father and their brother were marched off by the, the mob and, and killed before their eyes. They were then stripped, they were paraded naked through the village and gang-raped in a field, and the police were there, they did nothing. Six months later, they live in temporary housing. They don't leave the house except to, or, sorry, even to go to church, even to take the children to school. They live in constant fear and shame. Their husbands are engulfed by grief and by rage that they couldn't stop this horrible thing from happening to them. They have nothing to pass on to their children. One of the women said, my resolve has strengthened. I want justice at all costs. It's why I'm speaking up. So no woman is harmed again the way I was. These women and the other villagers who didn't survive are witnesses. Witnesses against the world that sheds the blood of God's holy ones. No human court can bring justice in this case. I mean, what would, what would justice even begin to look like? No human court can bring justice in so many other cases, but will not the judge of the whole earth do what's right? Of course he will. Of course he will. Back in chapter 6, John saw this vision of the saints offering their prayers on the altar of heaven. And they were crying out, How long before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These martyrs in heaven asking God to do something, and with these bowls being poured out, he's answering fully and finally for the blood of the martyrs. With the first bowl, God causes the followers of the beast to suffer painful sores, a 
a, a true judgment for the way that they've caused his holy people to suffer. With the second bowl, he turns the sea to blood. He brings the world economic system to a, a crashing halt. This is justice for the way that his people have been economically pressed by the inhabitants of the earth. With the third bowl, he turns the rivers to blood, causing ecological disaster. The, God makes the, the earth as inhospitable to human life as the inhabitants of the earth have been inhospitable to Christian life. God will bring just and true judgment to those who have wronged these women in Manipur and to all who've wronged Christians for godly living. And because God is the righteous judge, that should shape the way we live now, the way we live in this world. I can think of at least two ways. I'm sure you can think of more, but let me give you two ways that having a righteous judge makes a difference. First, it calls us to be recklessly obedient in this world. Recklessly obedient. We are called to be the ones that take up our cross and that follow Jesus, no matter the cost, because no opposition is finally going to stand against him. So when a Christian journalist risks being fired if she shines a light on a dark corner of uh, the world, she still has to speak, even at that cost. If a Christian lawyer is threatened by powerful people for shattering injustice, he has still got to pursue justice. If a Christian factory worker discovers my fellow workers are stealing from the company, he cannot keep silent, even if he risks a beating in the parking lot. If a Christian student risks mockery for speaking out to her peers and, and condemning immorality, she should speak boldly. We can do all of that knowing that the judge will vindicate his people. We will not finally be defeated, but the bloodthirsty world will be condemned. So we, we are called to reckless obedience by a righteous judge. We're also called to radically love others. We're actually freed to radically love others when we have a righteous judge. If ultimately it's up to me to see that justice is done, well then, I need to be vigilant and careful. Someone might take advantage of me. They might mistreat me, and I can't allow that to happen. That would be unjust. But if God is the righteous judge then I can be generous to people that don't deserve generosity. I can show hospitality to people that have excluded me. I can forgive people that have harmed me. If they abuse my kindness, so what? They're storing up judgment for themselves. It's not up to me. If I leave the final judgment to God, I don't have to anxiously guard my honor or, or, or protect myself. I don't have to worry about seeking vengeance for myself. The judge will do what is right. I'm sure you can think of other ways that it, 
It makes a difference that there's a righteous judge, but we press on. Secondly, I want you to see the limits of persuasion. I think most of us assume that even if the majority of the inhabitants of the earth reject God, persecute his people, they do that out of ignorance, surely, we think. If only they knew God, they'd stop opposing him. If only they could understand that living for Jesus makes the world a better place, they would, they would stop persecuting his people. And so we think, if only I could educate them, if only I could inform them of the things they're ignorant of. But that is not what the Bible says. That's not what the scriptures teach. I doubt even it's your experience, if you think of people that you know. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that human beings, left to their own devices and desires, will only ever oppose God. Adam and Eve, they lived in a literal paradise. But they began to suspect that God is holding something back from us, something good. We'd be better off if we didn't listen to him. And they rebelled. When things were going well in Israel, they grew comfortable. The book of Deuteronomy says they, they grow fat, fat and happy, and they forget God. When things are going poorly, they grow desperate, they seek idols. Whatever the circumstances, humanity's natural response to God is never to turn to him, never to, to trust him, but always to oppose him. And Revelation shows us that natural defiance will persist even under severe judgment. Verse 8 we read, they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. Verse 10, people gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Verse 21, they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. So the world collapses under the judgment of God, and those who worship idols will not turn from their idolatries to worship the true and living God. That's what we see here. And I think it only takes us a little bit of reflection to see this is true of people we know. Perhaps it's been true of us. Consider the non-Christian people you know and how they respond to hardship. Does it make them turn to Christ? I know several, including members of my own family, wider family, who are seared by the heat of life. But they don't even consider the Lord Jesus. And they, they see the beauty of the world that we live in, maybe the sublime beauty of a sunset, over the, the mountains, they, they sense something greater, and yet they would never glorify the God of the Bible. The thought never even crosses their mind. And I find this difficult because I believe in persuasion. I, I want to persuade people. I've actually, 
I've given a lot of time to learning how to argue and, and learning how to how to be persuasive, how to show people the truth of the gospel. I want to take people's objections seriously so that I can address them because I don't want anybody to come under God's judgment. I don't want anybody on that day of judgment to say, why didn't anybody warn me? I want to tell people. I want to persuade people. Turn. But for many, nothing is going to turn them. We don't actually know which are which. We don't know who is who. We don't know. But we know that many will not turn. They will spurn the love of God shown in the death of Jesus. They will curse the wrath of God shown in the judgment. They will be damned. So what do we do with that? Well, it tells me I need to spend much more time praying for non-Christians than I need to spend arguing with them, persuading them. We've got to pray for a world under judgment. They won't turn to God. We won't turn them to God. But God can turn them to God. Try as we might, we will never persuade some people to turn to Christ, but God can open blind eyes. God can save. He has saved us if we're Christians. By nature, we reject him. By grace, we receive him. You've received him if you're a Christian. God can save. He's proven it. And we must pray that he will save. That is our hope for a non-Christian world. So when's the last time you persistently prayed for somebody to be saved? Not just in passing, but kind of earnestly, persistently prayed. I don't do it enough. I do it far too little. Let these warnings of a righteous judgment coming drive you to pray for non-Christians in your life. It's what they need. It's the only hope they have. It's the only hope we have that God saves. Lastly, I want you to see the, the martyrdom, the necessity of martyrdom. We see the sixth bowl poured out on an idolatrous world and it heads, it leads the world to this final showdown. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Again, this is picture language, but it calls to mind all the times that these invading armies of Assyria and Babylon entered into Israel to carry off God's people, to wage war against them. But we see in verse 14, this is not just kings from the east. It's not about a geographic area. This is the kings of the whole world, actually, coming to wage war. Summoned by the dragon and the two beasts uh, and the spirit that, that drives them. Summoned to fight against God at Armageddon. Now, Armageddon, it literally means the Mount of Megiddo. It's a place in the Valley of Jezreel in uh, the, the um, Middle East. And in history, 
in the history of the Old Testament, it was the site of several significant battles that Israel engaged in. So that is why it's named here, because it calls to mind that those battles in Israel's history of God's people being assaulted under attack of this incredible advancing army. But we don't need to focus on the geography of a little hill in the Middle East. We see that all throughout history, uh, the world system has opposed God. And at the time of God's final judgment, all the forces of evil will wage war against God. So they have opposed him. They will, before the final judgment comes, oppose him as they never have before and oppose his people. But see, there's no description of a battle here. They gather, and then it ends. They gather, and it ends. The, the next several chapters, they describe what happens when, when Satan is defeated and the beasts are thrown into the abyss. They, they describe the defeat of the enemy, but there's no battle, really. The sixth bowl results in the end of the world, the victory is assured. The seventh bowl announces the end, just as Jesus from the cross announced, saying, uh, it is finished. He announced that salvation was finished from the cross. Now this voice from the throne announces it is done. The judgment is complete. Salvation was completed. Judgment will be complete. God's enemies will be defeated. The city of Babylon will be destroyed. We'll hear more about that next week. And once that evil city is wiped out, God can establish his perfect new Jerusalem, a new creation, glorious and, and wonderful, with God at the center and his people gathered around. But with those certain events coming, I want you just to see in this, these last few minutes that we are the ones being addressed in verse 15. Here is the voice of Jesus saying to us, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Two sentences from Jesus. Two final truths for us. First, an encouragement. The forces of evil are going to gather against God, against God's people. We will come under assault for our Christian faith. We, it, if we haven't already, we will. And it'll look like things are out of control, and we'll ask, where is Jesus? There doesn't seem to be any hint of his coming. And Jesus says, that is the point. When a thief comes, he doesn't announce it. He doesn't leave you a calling card and say, I'm going to come on Sunday afternoon. He comes when you don't expect him. There's no indication that he's coming, and then he suddenly comes, and Jesus says, that is how it's going to be when I come. Even when there's no sign, things are proceeding according to plan. Jesus is coming. Be encouraged by that. Secondly, though, an appeal, blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed. 
We've all had this experience where at home, we, we jump in the shower, we, we've got the shampoo in our hair, and the doorbell rings. And, and we can't go to the door, we can't answer, we're naked. You're not ready. And Jesus is saying, make sure you're ready. He's coming, make sure you're ready. He could come at any moment, so be faithful. He can come at any moment, so keep trusting. Keep serving, even when it's costly. Be faithful. And what enables Christians in Manipur to stay faithful to Jesus Christ, even when their villages are being burned down and their lives are threatened? They see beyond the visible. They see a heavenly reality. They know that Satan is already hurled down. The battle of Armageddon already won. The glorious future already secure. And so they can be faithful even to death because victory is guaranteed. Martyrdom is necessary in this world. Some of us might face that. Most of us, it's likely, won't be martyrs, but we will, even in smaller ways, face real suffering, real challenges, real weariness in following Jesus. And Jesus says, stay ready. We need this vision to persevere. We need this truth to sink down uh, to our, our hearts, and we will be ready. Let's pray. I will um, lead us in intercessory prayer as well.